Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Exodus chapter 20. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we are in uh, a series through the Ten Commandments. It's a little different than what we normally do. Uh, we normally kind of spend a considerable amount of time in a book of the Bible, kind of working our way through uh, the book section by section. But what I've decided to do is go through each commandment, uh, one per week. And I kind of gave the rationale for that in the first uh, message to the series. So if you missed that and uh, you want to catch up on that, you can go back and watch that uh, online. It was the, the first week of our series, uh, Handwritten by God. This morning, I'm also going to do something pretty unusual, maybe uh, one of the most, most unusual sermons you hear from me, in that it's going to be probably eight or ten minutes before we actually get to the text at hand, because as I've been promising the past couple of weeks, I want to show you the missional value of the Ten Commandments. And I think this is important. It's important for us as we try to understand who we are in our world, who God is, who we are in relation to God. And so we're going to look at kind of this missional approach to the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to begin in what may seem to be a strange place. I want to begin uh, by going back to Jesus in the temple in the early part of the first century. Now, of course, this is much later than the Ten Commandments were given. Um, but I want, to th- I want you to think about this scenario. Maybe you remember it. It's Jesus' uh, death is impending, it's looming, he knows it's coming. He goes into the temple and he actually turns over the tables. Um, This is the angriest we've ever seen Jesus, we would ever see Jesus in the Gospels. And maybe you grew up in a tradition where you were told this is because they were disrespecting the, quote, house of God and uh, because they were selling things in the house of God. And maybe you've heard that as application that, you know, you can't sell you know, candy bars or brownies or t-shirts or mugs or books in in the lobby of the house of God. And that's not at all what this was about. Uh, We have to understand a bit about the temple in Jesus' day. And the temple, of course, you had the Holy of Holies, which you had the holy place. You had the the court uh, of the Jewish men. It was called the court of Israel. You had the, the court of the women where women could go. And then on the very outskirts of the temple was a place known as the courtyard of the Gentiles or the court of the ethne. And this is a place where the Gentiles, of course, all those who were not Jewish, would actually come. They could mill around. They could spend time. There was the biggest area of the temple uh, proper. And this is a time where they could be introduced to the worship of the true and living God. This is where they were actually exposed to, if you will, the true God. Some people have equated it to sort of a a Billy Graham crusade. This is where they would see people worshiping, and they would, they would, see, they, with their own eyes, they would experience the people of God engaged in the worship of God, with the goal, of course, that they themselves might be intrigued or actually seek the living God. Well, what happened in Jesus' day was there was so much commerce going on, trading, bartering, whatever was going on, that actually the the Gentiles had been totally pushed out of the court of the Gentiles. So this temple area, which was meant to be a place to draw in the surrounding pagan nations, had actually become a place where they had been excluded by the Jewish trading and so on. Um, And so the Messiah, who was popularly expected by the Jewish people to cleanse the temple of all foreigners and Jews, or non-Jews rather, um, Jesus actually corrects that and says, Mark 11, 17, he says, is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, by all of this trading and commerce, and if you've ever seen sort of images or or video of 
what, what used to happen sort of in the New York Stock Exchange and all the hustle and so on, you can get a, a sense of this. With all of this commerce going on, the people of Israel who were called to be a light unto the nations were actually turning away the nations, condemning them rather than welcoming them. And this angered Jesus greatly. God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the rest of the world, which is what the temple was supposed to symbolize. God's dwelling for the benefit, the sake of the rest of the world, had come to actually symbolize God's exclusion to the rest of the world. And again, because Jesus cares about all people and all nations, he's very bothered by this. See, from the very beginning, God has had one single mission. Now, we think about the word missions. We tend to think about a certain team that's part of the church, and they meet you know, once a month or whatever, and they talk about how the church can reach other people. Maybe when you think about missions, you think about a group of people going to another country and building a building or doing street evangelism or whatever, or you think about that. And those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with those things. But missions is actually anchored in, rooted in God's single mission, and that is to restore, to redeem to buy back out of slavery a sin-cursed and broken world. It's fair to say that God, our God, is goal-oriented. If you are a very goal-oriented person, uh, then you have some some company here. Our God is goal-oriented. The mission of God is to restore all of creation to its original design, or or in fact, actually, to to a place that was actually better than its original design. We think about we let our imaginations kind of run wild. What was the Garden of Eden like? And we, we think about what was the world like before sin entered the world and the curse of sin. And, um, and we can think about the way that it must have been. Well, God's final creation, the restoration of all things, is actually going to be better than, more glorious than the original creation. And the Bible tells us about this God who refused to forsake his rebellious creation, who refused to give up on a wayward people, who refused to abandon his broken world, but instead has determined to redeem and restore fallen creation to an even greater glory than it once had. This God breaks through to humanity that he created. He reveals himself to them in creation, in his word, and then most uh, arrestingly in the person of his son, and he makes possible and certain that some will be restored to him along with the whole world. This God is making all things new. Now, missiologist Michael Goheen writes this, Mission begins with the redemptive activity of God. The Bible narrates the work of the triune God to restore the whole of creation and the whole of humankind from the corrupting effects of sin. Whenever I do a funeral service, um, almost, in almost all of them, immediately afterward, there's what's called the graveside service, where you, you've been to these, you Either if, it, if it's close enough, you walk up to the graveside, or, if you, or in some cases, you drive to the graveside. And then people kind of meander their way to the actual gravesite, which is typically under a canopy. canopy. And then the funeral director will in- encourage people to gather in closely. You know, people come together, everybody gather in, and they'll hand it over to me. And now, this, it's hard to keep people's attention because, there's, first of all, emotions are raw. There's all kinds of things going on. There are people digging and, you know, just down a few yards from there, distractions. So what I usually do is I, I usually begin, I'll say, when I get everybody in and close and I'll wait for a second, and I'll ask the question, have you ever been lied to? And this people are like, okay, wh- wh- where's this guy going with this? Have you ever been conned? 
Sometimes people actually nod in affirmation. I say, have you ever, have you ever been deceived? At this point, people are saying, what does this have to do with my you know, friend, parent, whatever, who just died? And I'll say, and then I say, you know, death is actually the greatest deceiver of all. Because everything about death says this is the end. I mean, look, at, look around. I mean, there's a 400-pound casket in front of you, which will soon be lowered into an 8-foot hole. The dirt will then be piled on top. Everything about this scenario screams finality. Everything says this, this is all there is. This is the end of it all. And I say death is the great deceiver because we know that death is not the end. For those who are in Christ, they actually are with the Lord. But even beyond that, God is preparing. He is going to refurnish the world by fire. And it's a world that will be free of sin and condemnation on which we will live as God's people. The mission of God is to redeem and restore this world from the curse of sin. But again, not just the world. He's also redeeming a people for himself who would enjoy that world. This is the way that it's been from the beginning. God called Israel to be a blessing to the nations. It was through Israel that the surrounding pagan nations, the Canaanites and Jebusites and Paris, all the, all the other nations would be introduced to the true living God among all the false gods of those nations. But what happens in the temple is Jesus goes and he sees that the nation of Israel, rather than actually welcoming and being allied into the nations, they've actually frozen out. They have, they've uh, cast aside the rest of the world. But God has always intended to use Israel as allied into the nation. How would Israel be used by God? How could they possibly stand out among the peoples of the earth? Well, it would be in part by the way they live. They would live according to God's law. Of course, nobody else in the world had God's law, only the nation of Israel. And by living according to, to God's law, the people of Israel would stand out among the nations. They were meant to actually be a display people for God. Uh, in his book, God's Holy People, David Wells writes, Israel is to mediate and embody God's holy presence and blessing to the surrounding nations by being a distinctive people. John Durham, in his commentary on Exodus, affirms, they are to be a people set apart, different from all the other people by what they are and are becoming, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. So God gives Israel the law, the Ten Commandments, and He gives them the commandments to Israel after He redeems them, as we've seen already repeatedly. And he says, you are now going to stand out from the rest of the world as they look at you and they say, why do these people act like this? Why do they live like this? Why do they keep these commands? You will be a new society on display for the rest of the world. Now, begs two questions. What does the fifth commandment have to do with God's mission of restoring this broken world? And secondly, what does the, fifth, what does the mission of God have to do with us? So those are just two points this morning, and those, the answers to those questions will serve as our points. So let me read the text, and, and as you've realized, we're kind of building each week on the previous section. Hopefully, by reading the whole section, it will be kind of ingrained in our memory. So Exodus 20, I'll read verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And then the text at hand this morning, you shall not murder. So the people of Israel would stand out among the the surrounding nations by virtue of their keeping of the law of God. And here we have this, the law, the sixth commandment, which is, I think, by all accounts, the most self-explanatory. It is, you shall not murder. This is a command against negligent homicide, what we may even call uh, involuntary manslaughter. This is a command against murder, um, against the taking of innocent life. It doesn't condemn war, all war. Sometimes in a broken, sinful planet, you know, war is necessary, nor does it prohibit capital punishment, which the Scriptures uh, reveal uh, the government as God's sort of messenger and mediate, mediating His justice. Now, of course, I think the more that we read about some of the issues and problems related to that, we have to think very seriously about that. But the Scripture does not, this command does not prohibit that. Again, it's a command against intentionally or recklessly taking another human life, the life of an innocent person. But behind the command, we've talked about this, but there are these commands, most of them are actually, they come across in a negative way, but behind the negative commands are actually positive commands. And the same is true for this one. So behind the negative command, you shall not murder, is actually a positive command, and it's this, you shall cherish the sanctity of human life. What does God's mission have to do with the fifth commandment? Our first question, here's the answer, our first point. God's people are called to stand out in part by the sacredness with which they regard human life. God has this mission, and we'll get more into how we fit into the mission as the second part of this, but God's people are called to stand out in part by the sacredness with which they regard human life. So God has a single mission to redeem and restore a sin-cursed world back to its original creation, even better. Everything that is wrong with the world will be made right. This God that we serve is an all-powerful and sovereign God who has had a plan to restore creation, and it is a plan that no one can thwart, it is a plan that nobody can delay, it is a plan that nobody can throw off. This God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over what we're going through right now. He's not only sovereign over the rain, natural disasters. He's sovereign over the intimate details of your life. What you went through this morning as you were getting your kids ready, whatever happened, what you went through this last week, what you're going through 
at your job, in your marriage, with your health. This God is sovereign over all of it, and He has a plan that no one can ever derail to redeem and restore the world that He has created. This living God is not just restoring the world again, but He is bringing to Himself, redeeming for Himself a people who will worship Him. Now, one way that God introduces Himself to other people is through the lives of people who are peculiar, who live differently, a people who are countercultural. I heard a well-known pastor say this week, tell the story of he was having dinner with uh, his family and his two teenage sons, and, and this is not one of those stories where I'd say, you know, somebody else was doing it, but it's actually me. This is actually, a, this other guy I heard tell this, and he said he was having dinner with his family, and and his, one of his teenage son asked if he could go do something after dinner, and his dad said, no, you're not going to do that. And his son was just so angry at this. He said, how did I get stuck in this family that's like rooted, he rooted in the dark ages? Like, how did I, get, how did I become part of this? And, and the dad said, he said, you know, I wasn't really thrilled with the tone. You know, it was a little disrespectful. And I wasn't really thrilled with the timing. But he said, I did find encouragement in the fact that my teenage son recognizes that we are actually, our family, we are a countercultural unit. We're different than much of the world. God's people stand out because of the way they think, what they love, how they treat one another. And oh, certainly we do that imperfectly in our desperate need of God's grace ourselves and, and the reassuring uh, power of the gospel. Nevertheless, the way God's people live should stand out. It should call into question the assumptions that the world makes about life and humanity, God, and so on. And one of the distinct ways that we stand out, we call into question the world's assumptions, is by the way that we treasure, stand up for, and regard the sanctity of human life. From the moment of conception, from the moment of conception, Every human being reflects the image of the triune God and therefore is of incredible worth and value. Every human being is to be cherished regardless of age, gender, skin color, ethnicity, education, abilities, achievement, family lineage, whatever it is. Every single person from conception until death bears the image of God and therefore is of great worth. In fact, the fifth commandment is actually foreshadowed in the early chapters of Genesis where, the, where this link to the image of God is made explicit. Genesis 9 tells us this, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So the image of God is not something that we sort of attain to. It's not something that we work our way towards. The image of God is actually part of our very essence. It's something we possess as those created by God as human beings. Um, now, we then, as those called out people of God, we stand out by this conviction that every human life is sacred from conception to death. Now, if you don't think that we will stand out from the rest of the world by the way that we regard the sacredness of life. You've not been paying much attention to what's going on in our world. We live in a world where preborn children are killed at a staggering, gut-wrenching rate. Of course, just one 
just one preborn child being killed is staggering and gut-wrenching, but the way that it happens, because their lives are not valued. There are places in the world, do you realize there are places in the world, uh, not far from us in terms of the way of thinking, where animals are given greater care than actually children. We live in a world where the elderly are often ignored, mistreated, marginalized, and even abused. Where they are regarded as people who maybe had great value kind of back in their day, but no longer of value. I, I got as angry as I've gotten maybe in the last 12 months that I can remember when we were in Sam's a couple weeks ago and we, there were about five or six carts, you know, you have to wait to check out and they scan whatever the most expensive item so you can leave. There were about five or six carts deep and a man kind of just walked up. He had like three items, no cart, walked up and he cut in front of the guy who was in front, who was an elderly gentleman. And the guy said, hey, wait a second, you, you, the line's back there. He said, oh, no big deal. The guy said, no, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. Don't you see the line? There's a big line here. And the guy said, hey, don't worry about it. And the elderly gentleman said, I am worried about it. And he said, well, meet me outside then. Now, I was about five, you know, I was, I was pretty far back, but I, was, I could at least catch what was going on. And so I saw the guy, the guy who went up and cut in front of everybody and, you know, actually demeaned this older gentleman. He actually waited outside, right outside the door for this man. And when the guy, the elderly guy walked out, he got in his face. He was, he was this was a little, the elderly man was a smaller man. He was hunched over. He was, his, he was, you know, demonstrative in his gestures. And I could just feel myself. I, I, I drove around the parking lot for like 10 minutes trying to find this guy. I don't know what I would have done to him, but uh, I was so upset by this. But, but you know, we live in a world where, where, where the elderly are maligned. They're no longer heard. We live in a world where the phrase black lives matters has to be said and repeated because sadly for a very long time black lives have been undervalued, have not been regarded. Black folks have not been treated as if they matter. We live in a world where those who are poor, relegated to this cycle of poverty are often ignored by those who just say, well, why don't they get a job? Just get a job. We live in a world where there are cultures that devalue and victimize women where women are abused, told to be quiet and listen rather than treasured as those who reflect the very image of God. Now, this is not a political problem I'm talking about. This is a moral, ethical, biblical problem. When we demonstrate to the world in a loving and humble way that we cherish human life of every race, every age, every ethnicity, every gender, well, there's only two genders, but whatever it is, we, we, the world may look at us and they may mock us. The world may laugh at us. They may say a bunch of Neanderthals, wooden-headed, alt-right, whatever. They may, they may mock us. They may laugh at us. They may criticize us. They may scorn us. They may, even, they may even be afraid of us. They may even want us to be silenced. There was a cartoon that was published in Christianity Today in 2002 um, in which kids, a group of kids are entering high school. Let me show you the cartoon. One administrator says to the other, it's the latest in school safety devices. The light and horn go off if a student tries to smuggle in a gun, knife, bomb, or a copy of the Ten Commandments. Now, the point being that those who actually believe in moral absolutes, those who believe in a transcendent authority, a divine being, those who actually believe that all truth is not relative, are actually not only just looked at with disdain, 
looked at derisively, but also in some ways looked at those who must be silenced. There's a growing unease when it comes to any notion of moral absolutes, of course. We talked about this in week one. And yet, as I mentioned in the open remarks of this series, there's also a growing sense, this, as, as post-modernity kind of has already reached the peak and kind of on the other side of it, there's a growing sense that people are actually desperate for something real, something substantive. Remember I told you the, the story about the guy who's at the church right in the middle of Hollywood, California, and people just keep coming of all ages, and millennials are flocking, and he said, well, the reason is we, we, we're giving people something of substance, something real, not something subjective, not something sort of touchy-feely, something that's different for everyone. Because he said people are, they're, they're becoming leery of this idea that we should, everybody determines what's right and wrong in our own eyes, his own eyes, this idea that we kind of speak, quote, our own truth. It's not helping people. It's not helping people, so people are leery of it. It's leading to frustration, emptiness, broken relationships, and broken lives. Now, of course, it has to be said, and this is where the Scriptures, you know, they tread on us a little bit. It has to be said that the greatest problem is not with the big bad world out there. The greatest problem is in here. It's in our own hearts our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, our own sin tendencies. We secretly diminish the value of human life in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions, even if we never murder anyone. Like, for example, when we assign negative traits to an entire race of people. Oh, you know, that, that's just how they are. That's just how they are. Like when we shame an unwed pregnant mother and ask questions like, well, should the church offer her a baby shower? I mean, after all, this baby was conceived in sin. When we elevate and idolize youth and sneer at the elderly because of how they think, how they walk, how they smell, whatever it, it may be in our minds. When men act like women have nothing valuable to add to the discussion. And likewise, when women act like Men need them or they would just be sort of bumbling around as clueless idiots, which I think is the, basically the theme of about 90% of sitcoms. You know, if this woman didn't, if this man didn't have his wife, then, you know, he's just going to be tinkering around. You know. But this, these are ways that we actually diminish the value of human life. When we tell our children that we would prefer that they marry someone of the same skin color and we make some sort of quasi-biblical argument for it. See, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. Our hearts are inclined in such a way that we think much more highly of our own value, our own contributions, our own worth than we do of others. We're called to stand out, but so often we don't. We think and we sound and we love and we act just like the world does. In fact, J.I. Packer had this powerful statement some 15, 18 years ago. He said, he said, as Christians, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But sadly, for most of us, we're of the world, but not in it. In other words, we still think like the world. We still act like the world, but we've actually sort of sequestered ourselves in our Christian bubbles, our Christian ghetto, and we're sort of pushing everybody away while we still continue to think like the rest of the world. We're called to stand out. So often we don't. 
But this is why the historical context of the Ten Commandments is so important. As I pointed out in week one of this study, our acceptance by God is by faith alone. And only then are we given expectations. It's the expectations that come from acceptance and not the other way around. As I quoted in week two, the Dutch theologian uh, Joachim Duma, who writes this, the commandments follow the gospel of undeserved deliverance. The great exodus, this incredible exodus event, which precedes the giving of the ten words, is actually, I think, probably the most beautiful picture of God's salvation. And there are some beautiful pictures. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, just incredible picture of God's salvation. You know, the, 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 the words of Ezekiel, the imagery of the dry bones being given sinew and skin and flesh. And so there's some beautiful pictures of God's salvation, but I can hardly think of one that's more powerful than the story of the Exodus. It is a real event through which God physically saved the people of Israel, and certainly there were some who were spiritually saved as well, as through that event they put their trust in the coming Messiah, the, the promised one. But in the Exodus, we see the power and mercy of God in delivering from enslavement a helpless and lost people. And think about it. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the merciless way that the Egyptians treated the Israelites. They, they, were, they were outnumbered. They were outmanned. They were beyond help. There was no way they could save themselves. They were hopeless and helpless and lost and enslaved. And God, through His strong right hand, we're told, He miraculously delivers them. And this is exactly what God does for us in salvation. We are hopeless and we are helpless and we are enslaved to sin and death and the law. And God, through the cross work of His Son, delivers us and grants us freedom. This saving activity of the Exodus event finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ on the cross. See, the Scriptures contain both law and gospel. And we've talked about the law. We're talking about the law. The law sometimes represents the Mosaic law, and sometimes it's a reference to all the commands and demands in Scripture. But we see the law. In fact, we, we've, this is the sixth law we've looked at. You know, last week it was honor your father and mother. This week it's you shall not murder or, or said positively, cherish the value of human life. There's law in the Scripture. And praise God for the law. It tells us the way to live. It gives us the way of human flourishing. It reveals to us the way that God is honored and pleased. But it does not provide what it demands. It does not enable what it requires. This is why we need gospel. The gospel is not a demand. The gospel is an announcement of very good news. The gospel declares what God has done in Christ for the dead, broken, enslaved, rebellious, helpless, for those who have violated God's Ten Commandments. The gospel is good news for those who have dishonored father and mother. It's good news for those who have not honored God above every God. It's good news for those who have worshipped the true God in a wrong way. It's good news for those who have not cherished and preserved and protected the value of human life because it's the news that in Christ we are forgiven because of His good works, His obedience. It's not good news that if we do certain things we'll be forgiven, but they, we are loved, accepted, forgiven already by God through faith in Jesus Christ because of what His Son did. 
Now, at this point, you probably heard, because this was, I don't know, this was probably 12 years ago, maybe. Um, not, not quite that long ago, but you probably heard the story of Leah Ramini, who was the, she was the actress on the sitcom uh, The King of Queens. And uh, she made national headlines by breaking with the Church of Scientology and was under persecution because of it. And, and, uh, but she, this was after 30 years of a very sort of hardcore allegiance and even evangelistic efforts and so on. She said what really brought her to this point was she had a little girl and she started to think about what, was like, what life was like for her as a little girl growing up in Scientology. And she said, there was only one mantra, get it done. Whatever it is, the church needs something, the, 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 the book says something, your elders said, whatever it is, get it done. There was, there was nothing, there were no excuses, there was no grace. She says, we were working from morning until night with barely any schooling. There was no saying no, there was no being tired, there was no, I'm just a little girl who, who just lost her father and everything I've ever known. There was only get it done. You must get it done or else. Now, that's the message of every religion, not just Scientology. And that's actually the message of the law. The law says you must get it done. Not partially, not even with, you know, not even with the best intentions. You must get it done. Paul says if we violate, offend, transgress one single law we're guilty of violating all of it. So the law does not grade on a curve. The law says you must get it all done. But the gospel is the beautiful announcement that Christ, to say it I guess somewhat crassly, got it done for us. He satisfied the full requirements of the law. He obeyed not just all the Ten Commandments, but all the commandments of God, both in word, deed, motive, thought, action, so that by believing in Him, His perfect obedience would become ours by faith. Now, I said we would answer two questions. What does the fifth commandment have to do with God's mission? The second was, what does the mission of God have to do with us? And the answer comes really in how God, God's mission unfolds throughout the epics of redemptive history. Initially, God told Abraham that He would, that he would use him and his descendants for the blessing of the world. You know, in you, in your descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. For you, you were blessed to be a blessing. So Israel was to be used to point people to the true and living God. But then, much later on, in the midst of this people, the people of Israel who were helpless, again, they were waiting and they were longing for liberation and freedom. In comes Jesus, who himself was on a mission. You know, we spent 14 months in John's gospel, and how many times do we see Jesus say that uh, you have to believe in the one who was sent? He said, he, didn't, he realized he didn't just sort of show up on earth. He was sent by God as part of an overarching mission of God to redeem broken and fallen humanity. Jesus said, he said, I'm sent. I've been sent by the Father. Believe on the one who was sent. Now, his mission was multifaceted. He would f- fulfill all the requirements of the law of God, which is, we just talked about, by living a perfect life, suffering and dying in our place, being raised for our justification, but then he would travel from town to town as part of his mission, announcing freedom from sin, salvation, forgiveness through this gospel message, the kingdom and its gospel. But then Jesus would entrust that message of forgiveness to us. 
to his church. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he would say a, a, a little bit later, you are my witnesses. The disciples who knew the true identity of Jesus and the Father who sent him, they would be sent to the ends of the earth to bear witness of this Savior and his salvation. It was a mission that would be handed over to every disciple of Jesus. Christopher J.H. Wright has a great article in the book called uh, Out of Exodus, and he says this, The church's mission flows from the identity of God and His Christ. When you know who Jesus is, witnessing mission is, an, is the unavoidable outcome. Here's the second and final point. As the church, we participate in God's mission by declaring and demonstrating the love of God in such a way that people would be attracted to Christ. So, so part of God's mission is, again, the mission is to, to, to reconcile, restore the whole broken world, and in that, to actually restore to Himself a people who would worship Him. And you remember, we saw a couple of weeks ago this commandment about uh, the Lord's name, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Not only does he want, God want His name revered, He also wants His name taken, spread to, in the words of Isaiah, the distant most islands. He wants His name extended to every part of the, the world so that in every people group He would have worshipers of Himself, those who know about His holiness and mercy, His justice, His love, His power and mercy, His grace, they would actually become worshipers of Him. So, again, going full circle, God has called us as the church to be a countercultural peculiar people. It doesn't mean that as Christians we should look weird or dress weird or we should have weird styles or, or, or be oblivious to what's going on in the rest of the world. It means by the way that we love, by the way that we live, by the way that we forgive, we actually call into question the world's assumptions. And let me just tell you how. As I'll run through the first six commandments in, in one minute. We put no other gods before the living God, commandment one, in an age of pluralism where there's a view that every God is fine and all roads lead to the same place. We worship the living God in the way He commands in an age of consumerism, and so we stand out. We speak about the living God with reverence, the third command, in an age of irreverence and sarcasm. We take a day a week to relax and worship God in a day of constant producing and activity. We honor father and mother, the fifth command, in an age that despises authority. We cherish the sacredness of human life in an age when babies are aborted, black lives certainly don't matter enough, the elderly are written off and abused, and the poor ignored. And when we fail in these areas, which we will do regularly and repeatedly, we confess our sins to one another we rest in the forgiveness of Jesus, whose mission was to announce freedom to the captive, rest for the weary, peace for the broken, hope for the hopeless. And not only do we ourselves rest in that forgiveness, we announce to the world that forgiveness is available regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've committed. Forgiveness is available and we stand out and we gain an audience with a watching world by the way we assist the weak, care for the poor, 
defend the helpless, stand up against injustice, share our faith individually, plant churches in hard-to-reach areas, and we send our best and brightest across the world on mission. And we tell those who have aborted babies, there is forgiveness for you in Christ. There is forgiveness for you. I don't know if I shared this. I think I just shared this with Pastor Adam. That's the only place I remember telling the story. But I was asked to, to write this article for a, a pretty big uh, website. And, and I, I wrote the article and I sent it. Well, maybe I did tell the story. Now it's coming back to me. If not, you, you can hear it twice anyway. Uh, I, I was asked to write this article and then I, I wrote it. And at the very end, I was talking about God's forgiveness for those who have uh, committed abortion, for those who have, who, have, who have doctors who have performed abortions. And I said at the end of it, I said that, that God's grace is sufficient to forgive even those who have, com- who have had multiple abortions. And I got, back, I got back the article from the editor, and who is a wonderful, godly person, but they had changed that last sentence from committed multiple abortions to just committed abortion. Now, I don't know what was behind that. I think maybe there's the fear that if we say that God's grace is enough, will that, you know, will that cause people to be free? With... But this is the reality. I'm telling the reality. God forgives people who have had multiple abortions. God forgives people who have committed racist and hateful acts. God forgives people who have dishonored their father and their mother. God forgives people who have worshipped other gods, who have been idol worshippers. God forgives people who have been caught up and enslaved to all kinds of sins and addictions. God forgives people who think that they are beyond the forgiveness of God. They think God's grace cannot possibly cover the sins that I've committed. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace is sufficient and glorious enough to cover the sins from, of every one of us, regardless of how secret they are, how offensive we may regard them to be. And so we, as the people of God, on the mission of God, we are sent with the good news of this incredible gospel that God is restoring everything that's broken and He is inviting sinful and broken people with the worst sort of pasts and records into a relationship with Him whereby He cleanses and redeems and renews and He makes right and adopts into His very family. The mission of God is one of restoration. It's a work that He is doing. But the shocking and marvelous part is that He invites us into it so that He will do for others what He has done for us so that others can say, as we will say together in 30 seconds, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What a glorious thought that is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Enable us to say this morning, those who have sinned against you, those who have... And let me, let me just make it personal. As one who has loved other gods, loved other things more than I've loved you at times, as one who has worshipped you in a way that was self-serving, as one who has taken your name in vain, not thought seriously or soberly about the majesty of your name, as one who has dishonored my own father and mother at times, as one who has, who has fallen prey to the idea that you know, I must constantly be productive, otherwise I'll not be pleasing to you, and one certainly who has not always 
stood up for, cherished, and regarded with great sacredness the sanctity of human life. I find forgiveness in you, as we all do in Christ. And Father, because of that, we can say, it is well with my soul. Give us the grace to believe it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.